Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and please share widely with others. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, we have two wonderful guests on the show. We have Simon Zummer, who is the co-CEO of the Jacobs Foundation, and Sharath Jeevan, who is the founder of Intrinsic Labs. And today we're going to be focusing our conversation around how foundations are able to nurture the organizations they fund. And this fits in very nicely with the discussions that are really very pronounced these days around the power imbalance between the global north and the global south, ensuring trust, and yet also ensuring that things are mission aligned. So how do we nurture organizations? How do we motivate organizations? And ultimately, how can we look at support that isn't just funding, but is providing other skills and other expertise to ensure that those grantees are nurtured the best way possible? Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. As I mentioned a minute ago, it's such a pleasure to welcome onto the show today Simon Zomer, co-CEO of the Jacobs Foundation and Sharath Jeevan, founder of Intrinsic Labs. A big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, real pleasure, Alberto. Excellent. Well, why don't we start by finding out a little bit about your respective organizations? We'll, we'll do that as a context for, for the start. Uh, Simon, perhaps you want to tell us a little bit about the Jacobs Foundation. Happy to do so. So the Jacobs Foundation uh, has been in existence for a little more than three decades uh, with, with assets of about uh, 7 billion Swiss francs. We are one of the world's large philanthropies focusing on child development and learning. Um, and uh, we have developed uh, a new strategy in a collaborative effort uh, that uh, will help us focus for the next 10 years on one topic and we'll focus our work on understanding and embracing variability in learning. So what does that mean? We want to understand why different children react differently in different uh, education environments, what, what makes uh, education so special for different uh, uh, types of children. So that's, that's a huge task, is relevant you know, in low resource settings and in very rich settings. And we really want to focus our attention on that. And we have pledged uh, a total of 500 million Swiss francs, it's approximately the same in US dollars, uh, to be invested in the next 10 years in that area. Remarkable, remarkable. And in terms of the organization, tell us a little bit about its origins and the size of the organization, both balance sheet and, and just staff. Okay, so our funding volume is between 40 and 50 million Swiss francs per year. Uh, we are 25 FTE here at the headquarters in Zurich. We do have uh, a team in West Africa that runs our work in, in Cote d'Ivoire and will also do this in Ghana um, in the future. We are organized in, in three portfolios, 
learning minds. That's our research work focusing on individuals that really bring the agenda of child development and learning forward. Learning schools is our work with global school aggregators where we really want to work at scale with schools to, to bring what we know into practice. And learning societies is our geographically focused work on a few uh, geographies that we know well, uh, West Africa, Switzerland, and we'll also open a hub in Latin America, hopefully very soon, where we really understand the context and can make sure that we'll have a systems impact with what we do. Wonderful. And Sharaf, give us a little bit of an overview of, uh, well, Intrinsic Labs, which is your, your latest incarnation. And before that, you were also the founder of STIR Education. For those of you who don't know, STIR Education does some really wonderful work around education in India, really looking at systemic change as well. Give us a little bit of an overview of Intrinsic Labs and, um, and what you're getting up to. Thanks, Alberto. It's a really special week for me. Um, I have a book that just came out uh, a few days ago called Intrinsic, actually, and really trying to respond to the motivation crisis we, we see ourselves in, in, in a wide range of areas in our work, our education systems, our parenting, um, as, as our lives as citizens. But this is a very special um, area for me in the area of philanthropy. I've been a social entrepreneur for the last 15 years. And one of the big ideas behind my work around motivation, I, I basically, my mission is to help organizations, leaders, individuals of all kinds solve deep motivation, uh, motivational challenges. What I've been observing um, in the book is this idea that, you know, obviously we're in a, in a world with many wicked problems, you know, many intractable social problems. And I guess I've been asking that question, is philanthropy set up to answer those, those problems well enough right now? And what came up from some of the research in the book was this idea of, of, of nurturing versus management. So I, I talked to how top chefs came into the world, top entrepreneurs, um, top business leaders, you name it. And this idea that we all need a great nurturer now to get us to places we wouldn't have got to otherwise. That's a key theme of, of my book, Intrinsic. But what it also made me think about, and this is how you know, we entered this conversation with the, with the wonderful Yakovs Foundation, you know, is philanthropy set up to do that well enough? There's still a culture where the foundation is, is a manager often. They want to select good organizations, report on them. Are they part of the impact chain themselves? Are they helping that organization, whether it's a... Uh, you know, an NGO or a private sector organization or a government, because foundation works with many, to, are they helping them get to that place they wouldn't have got to otherwise? And that's been a, a real obsession, I think, for, for, for my work. And this idea that perhaps we can go beyond trust-based philanthropy. And that's how we're so excited to engage with the foundation around that more broadly. Wonderful, wonderful. And I mean, that's a really interesting area, the, the whole notion of uh, how philanthropy is transforming itself from the traditional, you know, we're making a grant and here you go and we're going to do a project evaluation and so forth, uh, to um, moving away from restricted funding into unrestricted funding, to providing a lot more trust, and ultimately letting those recipients spread their wings and be able to get on with the sort of stuff that you trust that they can do well. Zimon, tell us a little bit about the work um, that you're doing right now in terms of the, uh, the recipients and how you're fostering that trust. So let me let me address this from from two different perspectives. First of all, you know the foundation has been working in learning and development uh, uh, for quite a while. So I believe we know a bit about human development and and motivation. Uh, and one thing that is really important is that you need to be demanding for children to learn things they don't like to learn. 
So the whole idea that you can just let them float freely um, works in a few areas, but it doesn't work in, in other areas. And a very well-known Russian psychologist more than 100 years ago has, has coined the term zone of proximal development. And that's like the zone just above the comfort zone, right? So stuff you present to children needs to be a tiny little bit too difficult for them to easily solve it. And I believe that's that's something we can also apply to organizations, right? It's not our task to, 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 to let them float freely in their comfort zone. At least that's not our understanding, but we need to, to challenge them. We need to challenge them. We need to work with them. And we have had, and we continue to have very robust discussions, Sharath and I on that, and that's great. And I guess that's also why you have uh, uh, invited us. No, that doesn't mean I don't believe in, 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 in partnership and in, in, in trust in partners. Quite quite to the opposite. We, we need to have this in place. And, and being um, a partnership innovator is one of the foundation's four core competences that we have defined in our strategy and, and in our theory of change. So we believe that achieving long-term impact in child learning and development uh, requires not only a broad commitment to working in partnership, but also a deep understanding of the how of partnering uh, as a philanthropic actor. This is where, where Sheriff is currently helping us. What are the principles, skills, behavior, systems, processes that can make us an effective partner to the actors and organizations whose efforts we align with and support? And that's uh, notably above and beyond the financial dimension. So we are not only talking about finances here, but really about a trustful collaboration. And, and that's our philosophy. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned, Simon, that you and Sharath have some pretty robust conversations. Uh, I wonder, do you agree on everything? Are there some areas that, um, Sharath, when you're viewing the whole uh, context that, that, that you're focused on right now with the Jacobs Foundation, what's, uh, what's that exchange about? No, thanks, Walter. And, and look, I mean, I think my role now, I'm really, I'm trying to be an advisor and nurturer, if you like, as well. I think it's really up to each organization, each foundation to figure out um, their own path in this as well. And it's been such a privilege to work with uh, the Oculus Foundation. I think the core, I would really agree with someone about that idea of, of stretch. We know that's really critical to flow. What has happened, I think, is this trust-based philanthropy discussion. I think maybe you and I would agree on this one. I love your thoughts. But um, it's 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 what's that that can sometimes be read is, look, get out of the way. You know, The foundation, just give us the money, give us the blank check, get out of there, and we'll give you the report a year later, if that. That's what we're... I think that that way of thinking has got to change. I, I, I'm as a social entrepreneur myself. I know how it can really help to reduce the cumbersomeness of forms or due diligence. All that stuff is very important. Some of these hygiene factors can be made a lot easier. We've been having good discussions at the foundation around that. But what is critical, and someone touched on this, the foundation and the partner are in this together. They're trying to fuse a unique combination of their strengths and assets. And, um, uh, and and capabilities to, to get us to a different place and help both sides get to that place they wouldn't have, have got to otherwise. And that really reinforces research in other areas. I looked for my book at Nobel Prize winnings. They're twice as likely to get a protege who also wins a Nobel Prize if they provide that stretch in the way that someone described there. So it's not about just letting go and you know all things that a thousand flowers bloom. It's really putting skin in the game, as someone said, and saying, we're going to do much more beyond just our money. And we're, we're in this together. Um, and how we can open up relationships, networks, capabilities, perspectives, expertise is as important as the money itself. So that was, I think that, that was a starting point. Would you, would you agree with that? But that's kind of uh, where I'd see it. 
I, I absolutely agree. And, you know, uh, perhaps to add one thing, a lot of people claim that they are the inventor of this famous saying, we need to learn the slow yes and the quick no, right? Uh, I believe it was uh, Tom Friel, the chairman of Hydric and Struggles, but I've, I've, I've heard different sources of that. But the important message here is for a foundation, we need to get our strategies and our priorities right and be honest and clear to people who want to work with us. So uh, first of all, it's the, it's the fast no. We are telling people, you know, you are not sort of the right organization to work with us. Uh, we can support you. Uh, to find others if we know some, and I'll do this, I'll, I'll try to do this, you know, whenever we have to turn down applicants um, or, or organizations who want to partner with us. But the slow yes is equally important. Uh, we believe a lot of the learning actually take place before you formally engage with a grantee, right? So nobody likes due diligence, right? But it is important. We are working in child and youth development. So we don't want to work with an organization that doesn't have a child protection and safeguarding policy, right? And if they don't have it, we'll take the time, we'll help them develop it, and then we'll partner with it, right? Uh, but we need to do this before we engage with these partners. So again, being demanding might not be the nicest thing. Uh, you know, if you receive this long letter from, from, from a foundation asking you for tons of information, I know that a lot of people in NGOs and, and other organizations don't like that. But we believe it's the prerequisite to then develop a trust based on a solid foundation that we jointly develop together. And that trust is needed for a fruitful collaboration over a long time. On that point, the relationship looks very different uh, it, in the initial stages when you're doing the d due diligence, where you're getting acquainted with each other, where you're, where you're seeing whether there's a meeting of the minds and whether there's an alignment to the sort of strategic uh, direction of things. What does it then transform into in practice once that relationship is established and presumably you're looking at grants that would be multi-year and you're looking mm -hmm. to flourish and grow with your grantees together. Give us a little bit of a flavor, either one of you or both of you, about how that then starts allowing for for the grantee to um, to show their colors, as it were, to 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 have their own style and uh, and do things in a particular way of of theirs. Sharath, you talked a lot to uh, to my team over the last weeks and months. So perhaps your perspective would be sort of the the more honest one. <laughs> yes, I looked at for, but for the book. I, I looked at online dating. I mean, real online dating, and actually, it's a bit of a mess, right? And we don't have a good mate. Although uh, we've got the paradox of choice, right? We have hundreds of dates we could all go on. I'm, I'm happily married. I should stress before my wife kills me. But um, you know, but it's the same sort of thing. I mean, there's so many NGOs out there, many foundations out there, especially with the proliferation of private wealth over the last few years. And that matching process is not going well, though. I can certainly speak to that as a former social entrepreneur. It's not very clear. And I, I think there's huge optimism in this idea that even if you don't get the grant or the investment from the foundation, that matching process can be a value. And I did a ton of interviews you know, um, for the foundation. I talked to many external stakeholders and many internal stakeholders and leadership team members. What came out very strongly is this unique sweet spot the foundation has around bringing together researchers and practitioners. There are a lot of foundations out, out there who want evidence. They want to consume the evidence. Very few foundations are well as well positioned to produce the evidence and co-create the evidence really critically. So what really came out of our work was this idea that that's an amazing sweet spot to focus on. So even if you, know, you, you have that courting process, not every day needs to lead to a marriage, But perhaps even if you don't go ahead with the full grant, 
there's still value from that network, that expertise, that would be a really nice way to, an aspiration, I think, for us to get to from this. You know, that really, and, and that way, I think that idea of showing your true colors, it's like online dating. We don't want, we, we should be showing our true colors from day one in the first date, right? And the marriage is the, you know, solidification, put the ring on, but I'll be Beyonce like here. But, you know, but by that time, we, we know each other's colors and we know it's the right fit. Whereas too much of philanthropy, there's this, charade going on where we're both pretending to be different people from the beginning let's let's, let's cap that, all that nonsense and get get down to it. this is important work and we need to do it fast and, and boldly online dating online dating is great can i follow up on that uh Sharath? because you know i mean we as foundations we need to justify our existence by by creating an added value beyond what an algorithm would do right i mean if if an algorithm would just distribute our money in a way that you know sort of is is, is logical then we could all quit, right? And if I were a funder, I wouldn't hire a large uh, team here. Uh, our sweet spot at the foundation is grounded in the aspiration to be a, a catalyst for collaborations and partnerships that wouldn't otherwise happen, that are very unlikely to happen, that an algorithm wouldn't generate, right? So what this means that we really intentionally seek to create opportunities for partnership where we can truly add value. Again, by bringing together groups who wouldn't otherwise come together, like educational technology, startups, and top researchers uh, in computer science, right? With totally different value systems, but we want to create uh, this, this sweet spot. And, and, you know, just this week, we launched a set of complementary initiatives that enables, we believe, an unparalleled collaboration between ed tech companies, premier research institutions, investors, institutional investors and philanthropic actors with the goal of, of unlocking the impact of education technology. This is exactly something that would not have happened if you know we only went the easy path that they, that was already traveled by a lot of uh, other organizations. Sure, sure. So I like I like the so if, if I'm if I'm looking at both of you, which I am through Zoom right now, but on the one hand we have the convening power and the uh, and the creative thinking as well of bringing together unconventional stakeholders who may not have that conversation. And I know Jakob's Foundation has a lot of visibility into a lot of sectors, both in the non for profit space and in the commercial space as well. And Sharath, you touched on that that absolute need to be fully transparent from the outset that works out better for everybody now let me put that as on as a placeholder to one side and then just follow up and ask you about a topic that seems to be increasing in prominence within discourse in in our field which is about this global south power structure power imbalance perhaps and ensuring that those grantees who are generally in the global south also have a voice in in the whole space give us uh, from either one of you, uh, how does this all play into the uh, into the the way that you're going about your your work, and and uh, is it a conversation that's being held within the senior management team? Is it a conversation that's being held with the management teams of those grantees to make sure that it's not um, just a token voice, but actually that they're part of that uh, true meaningful conversation? So, so just just one thought, maybe broadly, and I'd like to want to talk about the foundation specifically. But one thing I've I, I've been very moved, obviously, with the momentum around Black Lives Matter and other kinds of movements like this around uh, power, and I think it's been a deep reflective um, uh, process for me to think about how can I do better in that light. I just want to say that up front. Um, I think for what I found in the book was that we are approaching this winner takes all world, right? And I think Black Lives Matter, yes, it's about um, police brutality, racial injustice, but it's also this sense that 
many of us in the world are feeling like the odds are stacked against us, right? All the funding flows to a, a few organizations. I looked at professional tennis in a world that you know before, Alberto, and mm. all of the prize money goes to a few players, right? That sort of story. So I think foundations become then nurturing. I'll, I'll, someone can share more on exactly how that works, but that nurturing is even more important for organizations in the global south. What I think has been a narrative, it's much easier for foundations to to, 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 to um, uh, cream skim, right? Just pick organizations that already have the price, you know, things like the Audacious Prize, all these things. They're great mechanisms. I want to be clear about that, but they, they accelerate that winner-takes-all mentality. And you just pick organizations that already have the funding. What I think is so exciting with the approach the foundation is taking is that it opens up, it's much clearer, but it allows a lot more nurturing of much more diverse groups. But someone over to you. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I have to say that, you know, I mean, our mission is to help children and youth thrive and learn, right? So uh, it's not, you know, in our mission statement, you read, you don't read anything about nurturing organizations, right? That doesn't mean that we don't do it, but we want to pick the organizations that help us best in furthering our mission, right? Some of them might be already existing, very successful organizations, and we did so. You know, we work with TAL, for example. Some of them might be smaller organizations that we need to help to, you know, grow to the standards that that uh, we want to see in place. Uh, but yes, you're absolutely right. So the the, the discourse on north-south power imbalances uh, is very salient, and it's important for all of us in the sector. Here at the foundation, our approach to this question is twofold. If you allow me for a minute. So first of all, we really want to find out how we can be the best partner we can be to country stakeholders. So by truly embedding our work in the realities and the context of each country. By the way, that is not only true for the Global South. We need to do this here in Switzerland as well, right? We need to understand this context. And we do this by supporting the efforts of local organizations that we call the backbone entities that drive country-level activities and direct partnership with government or relevant actors. So this is a bit, you could call it the, the extended workbench of the foundation. These are, these are organizations that will grow very closely with us. We're going to weave them into our activities um, as, as backbone teams. But, but the, the probably even more important component here is uh, that we need to find out how we can draw our legitimacy from the core competencies, our own core competencies that we bring to the partnership. So it's our access to knowledge, expertise, and networks beyond the financial contribution, as I have said earlier. Um, and here, our history as a research funder uh, comes into place. We have been working in the area of research funding and evidence-based practice for the last three decades. So we bring an evidence-based lens to every single new collaboration and partnership. So whether that is with government actors in Switzerland or Ghana, large, or with uh, ad tech small, uh, small companies and startups uh, or their investors. So standing for the highest quality scientific rigor is something we won't compromise on. And that is what we expect from our partners as well. Now, it's not there in a lot of organizations right from the start, right? Who has the capacities to run experimental evaluations of what they do? But here we come in. We want to work with those organizations to improve their standards of evidence as well, which, you know, in the medium term will make it easier for them to, to attract funding from other sources. And that must be our aim uh, for our partner organizations. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What are the main sort of 
obstacles or let's say actually what are the main opportunities that you're seeing now when you're looking for when you're looking within both your existing grantees but also when you're landscaping the horizon and seeing you know who where's that hidden gem that we could possibly nurture uh, what are some of the things that keep on coming up that um, are that are opportunities so opportunities are new methods that that are now in place that we can generate evidence, even rigorous evidence with, with much less time and much less financial you know, uh, resources needed. So you don't need to run a three-year RCT to get at least a good you know, indication whether something works. You can do a teacher-led RCT that is run for eight weeks, then you do a, a rapid cycle, you do it again in a modified way. And after a few months, you, you can actually with, with good confidence say, this is something that works. Now you won't get it published in the American Economic Journal, but that's okay, right? Uh, so we have this, this, this sweet spot of new opportunities where evidence generation and sort of impact actually go together, right? The obstacle always was that organizations that care deeply for their communities and for, you know, for, their, for, for, for the, the people they serve said, we can't wait for such a long time and we can't spend so much of our resources, both financial and in terms of staff, on generating evidence. You know, I mean, a full-blown RCT that costs a million Swiss francs or dollars for an organization that has a budget of two million simply doesn't work, right? So we'll need to find these, these, these smarter, faster ways uh, of, of generating evidence uh, that, that helps everyone. And that's quite an opportunity. There's really exciting stuff going on uh, currently. Mm. How did you how did you two start working together? And I guess maybe the the question goes from Zimon to 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 Sharaf. Uh, what was it within Jakob's or or within Jakob's operations that made you think, okay, we could possibly use a fresh pair of eyes uh, who is well versed in this space? What made what what was it about uh, about that uh, Zimon that then led to that interaction with Sharaf? That is a good question. We have known each other for quite a while. Um, you know, we've met in different uh, conferences and, and other occasions. Uh, our system here at the foundation, our organization, actually allows for everyone in the organization to, to, to bring up, you know, opportunities to suggest partners we work with, to suggest a consultant who works with us. So in this case, this was not a CEO uh, suggestion uh, to, to work with Sharath, but our chief knowledge officer came within her budget responsibility, say, I want to work with Sharath. And I said, oh, well, I know this guy. Uh, let's do it, right? So this is part of what makes our organization special, right? So we are not having the hands on these budgets. Uh, our colleagues can actually uh, come and suggest people or processes or, or projects. Uh, and we wanted this to be something that uh, is not fully top-down. It also has this component of really working with everyone in the organization. And Sharath, I believe, talked to, to colleagues here at the foundation on all levels, uh, which, which helped to, to, to really generate a, a different picture of the, of the organization that we, you know, from our office probably don't, don't even have. And what was the argument the chief knowledge officer was, was, was making? Why, why bring our wonderful friend Sharath on board? Well, our strategy is a lot on the what and has, has focused a lot on, on our organizational restructuring, our processes, which I think we have really, you know, done well. We have created this, this, this co-leadership and shared decision-making process, which, which is, we believe, relatively best in class. 
it didn't have the component how this actually mirrors our the way how we work with partners right and this is where sharath and his his focus on the how on the how came in so sharath and they they tap you on the shoulder they say hi would you have bandwidth to give us a hand and then yeah i, I was really intrigued from the start but i have known uh, someone and also donica the, the chief knowledge officer for many years including others uh, like ross hall and others in the foundation so as that uh, new leadership team came uh, probably new um many familiar pe people who i also you know had a deep trust in a new uh there and i think what really intrigued me was the question donica asked me which was you know we want to become we want to grow our impact and, and someone mentioned some of the really ambitious uh, amount of funding that's going to come in and, and new initiatives and so on. we don't want to grow ourselves as an organization that much though and, and so it has to be through partnerships and we have to be a, a partnership innovator to 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 um, mirror what simon said so in that context the really interesting question which she also raised was we want to go through go beyond traditional trust based philanthropy as well we don't just want to let go and say let a thousand flowers bloom that's the in some ways perhaps the easier way we want to really think um how can we help our partners get to these places they wouldn't have got to otherwise and that felt like a nurturing question to me the thing i i asked donica right at the beginning i said look i i i'm happy to do this but on one condition that i'm allowed to ask everyone in the foundation one simple question right and she's just like okay what's this going to be i said look imagine you got a million swiss francs from the jacobs foundation or you got it from your aunt meg in a legacy what difference would that million have gotten you from the jacobs foundation over and above what aunt meg that that blank check would have given you if i'm allowed to start every conversation with the foundation uh, on that question i'm in and she said yes you can do it and such interesting questions came up and what came up so clearly was how much value the foundation was positioned to add to its partners to this unique sweet spot of bringing together research and practice so i was hooked and I, i thought there was a my role was a very humble one just to ask questions and help created what what donica called a guided journey it was it was lovely language not to give answers but to frame this journey for the foundation to talk their internal and external um, stakeholders and with them fuse a, a sort of an outcome a direction that really made sense for for them and help them on that journey it's been a real privilege to be to be part of it honestly what what i'm hearing here is um you're using the word nurturing but i guess we could also say you're acting a bit both of you as a sort of incubator for really good ideas and organizations you're not just bringing in the funding but you're bringing in the technical expertise much like perhaps a private equity or venture capital outfit might is there any are there parallels to be drawn there absolutely are. i mean we always you know say here internally we used to be a grant maker and now we are a financial institution to a certain extent uh, we are it's it's bringing again people together who wouldn't uh, other otherwise meet and you know where you can be sure that they also meet these standards i mean you know so for the people who then meet within our network they all know that they have been sort of quality checked uh, by us so so there is already a certain level of of trust that we can expect to 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 uh, be generated between between these people and organizations i know this very well from research uh, you know we, you'd be surprised uh, how often people steal ideas from other researchers so in our interviews we 
do know that these are great researchers, but we focus on other characteristics, right? We really try to find out their, 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 their characters, their non-cognitive skills, their, their ability to trust each other and their willingness to open up to others. So, so this is exactly that matchmaking mechanism uh, among equal-minded organization and, and, and people that, that comes in addition to the money. Uh, also, we keep the money uh, interest-free, and that means negative interest-free in Switzerland, by the way, right? Um, and you don't have to pay taxes on it. So that's also an advantage vis-a-vis Aunt Mac, I'd say. <laughs> True. <laughs> can, I, can I ask you just one, one thing? I'll just build on what uh, someone said there was that two things that really, really jumped out to me in this journey. One was the um, that sense, you know, we're, we're in such the, the problems we're trying to address, you know, education uh, inequality or disadvantage. It's such an intractable problem. We need new ways of thinking and being and, and, and nurturing. And so that ability to do that was very powerful. And I can say, honestly, the other side of it is I, I've been a social entrepreneur myself. It's such a lonely game, honestly. You feel like often you're, you're reporting to funders, you're answerable to them, but you're not getting help from them in the way that you want. And you feel you have to play this game of pretending and about that kind of, you know, um, who, who we really are. It's so nice to say, look, I, I've gone through this process. I'm vetted now. I'm part of the family. Let's just be open. This is what I'm struggling with. I need this evidence, help me. And so that vulnerability, that openness on both sides, it can really keep us in the game longer. I, I'm coaching many CEOs of leaving the space because they're just at a burnout rate. So I think this can really help that sense of support. Now, I, I love uh, a little segue here that you've opened up because you said there's a bit of vulnerability and it's exactly right. And, and I'm wondering how easy is it to get a recipient or beneficiary or somebody or a grantee, someone who is to some extent really going to be their, their future outcomes will be dependent on your decisions. How easy is it to have them open up, to be vulnerable, to say, look, yes, I could actually benefit from your help in A, B or C or X, Y, and Z. Um, because I imagine it's quite challenging. It's probably quite challenging, and both of you would know this. If you're a CEO and you go to one of your team members someplace and you say, how are you feeling about things? What's, uh, what could we improve here? You always hear, everything's great. It's very very few times where you get a member of your team saying, oh, yeah, well, actually, this is not good, and that could be improved. And and how how do you get that true, candid insight from those grantees? How do How do you enable them to become vulnerable without being fearful of you? Can I, can I do, oh, uh, just take a first view of that, just based on the interview? So, sorry, uh, one, one thing that really jumped out to me was a sense that um, that we're in this together. I think when I talk to many partners of the foundation, the sense that we're not we're not being judged by the foundation. There's not a judge and jury up there that I'm, but I'm really part of this together. They're also involved in this, and we're doing this together. We're jointly co-creating this work, and that spirit of of collaboration. It's almost a, a mutual vulnerability. Sorry, someone over, over to you. No, I absolutely agree. First of all, I would say, you know, you try to avoid this situation uh, by by really doing uh, thorough di uh, due diligence in the beginning and, and work really through all the uh, potential vulnerabilities and problems that, that may arise. You really work with these guys before you start uh, uh, working. And the second thing I believe is is really right from the start, define an exit strategy, right? So that means, you know, no matter what happens, this is this is going to be the exit strategy. Uh, and here are the three uh, scenarios, because you're absolutely right. Uh, otherwise, people will tell us uh, already with the next funding phase in mind, everything is great here, right? So uh, 
You could also say if, if, if there are no problems, you're just not telling us the truth, right? So in our uh, uh, conversations with our team, we always want to hear about the things that don't go right. And, and you don't tell me that this life is perfect for, for every one of us. It, it just, it's just not the case, right? So, uh, and the second thing is, uh, you know, be, be and at least, in, you know, to a certain extent, transparent about, you know, your issues that you have, right? Uh, but you're absolutely right. We, we will have a hard time uh, if we believe every grantee will always tell us the truth and reveal everything. I mean, that power imbalance that the money is here and creates a certain dynamic uh, on the partners will never go away. I, I don't know how. Uh, and uh, we need to manage it. We need to find you know, ways that it's not becoming too extreme and, and, and harms the organization and the beneficiaries, but it will always be there. And we have to be mindful of it. So for a grantee, it can actually be in their favor to come up to you and be honest and say, look, I'm actually quite struggling with this. I can see how we could get there, but I'm not quite sure how we could do it or I need your help for something. Perhaps that vulnerability helps helps foster trust in your eyes. Absolutely. The only issue is that a lot of people, it's the same like reading CVs and recommendation letters, right? You automatically deduct 50% of it. Right, and you say half of it is true. If somebody writes an honest letter, uh, then you'd say, "Oh God, this is a horrible candidate." Right, so that's the shift of mindset. We just need to uh, uh, sort of get away uh, and 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 not not continue with this like overselling mentality. Right, the overselling that is in place in our field is just uh, unhealthy in the mm -hmm. medium to long run. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me ask you, Zimon, how did you, uh, so you've been with the organization literally uh, pretty much to the day, 15 years, yeah. and you've risen through the ranks and you've done a lot of research and you've worked with uh, with some amazing people. How did you get into this? I, I'm always curious about that personal narrative, that professional trajectory. Okay, I started my career in management consulting with McKinsey and Company uh, in, in Germany. Uh, they hired me right out of grad school, and that was a, a very valuable lesson, but it was the, the famous or infamous 80 hours week. I did this for a while, learned a lot, and then I thought, okay, you know, my background is in, in humanities. You know, uh, I'm a music historian by training a while ago, so what can I do where I can bring my my humanities knowledge and my managerial experience together, right? And then there was this job offer from the Volkswagen Foundation, which is Germany's largest research funder. And I ended up uh, working in strategy development for, for this wonderful research funder. Did this for a few years. And then my wife, who is Swiss, wanted to move back uh, to her uh, home country, Switzerland. Um, and this is how I ended up running the research work here at the foundation only. Right, building up the Klaus Jakobs Prize, the Jakobs Research Fellowship Program, uh, which are now our flagship programs. And then after 13 years, our chairwoman asked us whether, together with Fabio, uh, uh, I would run the foundation. And I gladly said yes. So that's my story in a nutshell. Excellent. I'm a Beethoven expert by training. So if you're interested in, in 18th and 19th century music, we'll do another uh, podcast on that. I Yes, I'm actually <laughs> quite interested. In that, should we should we just continue with the <laughs> absolutely, Sharaf? <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about your background and um, yeah, the whole trajectory. Yeah, uh, like like so when I started in consulting, a uh, uh, company, another another consulting firm, uh, MBA background, etc. But fifteen years ago, I think we have, Simon and I have almost uh, similar anniversary dates. I founded my first nonprofit organization uh, in the UK in education ten years ago, still, which I handed over at the last at the end of last year. 
And I think for me, just really getting immersed in these questions of what motivates teachers, we reached about 200,000 teachers with STEER education, about 35,000 schools, 7 million kids. But it was such a challenging nine, 10 years of my life because there was a lot of research on motivation out there, but almost no guide on how to practically apply this stuff in our lives. And it made me realize there's actually an opportunity here to help many other organizations and build a movement around these principles of, of motivation. I hope my book Intrinsic is a, is a one step, but as much and if not more, the practical work with organizations like the Jacobs Foundation who are really open to asking these questions. It's very easy for foundations or corporates or anyone to say, it's all perfect. Going back to a key theme today, I don't need to look at this. But that openness to say, let's ask these questions of ourselves, let's be demanding of ourselves, just as we're demanding of our partners. Um, that, that guided journey has been has unlocked so much learning that I hope we can share with many other foundations around the world. Excellent. Um, not to be overtly, uh, not to plug your book overtly, but why don't you tell us what's the exact title of the book? How can somebody get their hands on it? Uh, it's called Intrinsic, a Manifesto to Reignite Arena Drive. It's been published by uh, Nimprit of Hachette around the world. Uh, it's on Amazon in most uh, most countries. Uh, please have a look. It talks a lot about philanthropy, I think a lot of the themes today, but also I hope for anyone in the sector looks at our, our working lives, our relationships, our parenting of our parents, and our lives as citizens. I hope it's a really fun way of uh, looking at our, our, these really interesting 18 months and thinking how can we reset the motivational dial. Wonderful. must be very re rewarding to see your book out there in the shelves. It's been two and a half years. So just, it's great to see it out there. Friend. I can see it in your smile right now. And Simon, um, as we're wrapping up, is there a key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after, after they finish listening to today's episode? Well, I'd say for, for all the NGOs and potential partners out there, also try to understand our perspective when we, when we deal with you. Uh, I don't know a single person working at a foundation that wants to sort of give partners a hard time. We all do this to, to achieve uh, better results together. Uh, so uh, if you try to understand our perspectives, putting yourself in, in our shoes uh, as well, uh, we, can, we can really improve our mutual relationship and working a uh, way of working together. I love it. Sharath, key takeaway from your side? Just, I think, ask that question. I think it was so powerful to ask that Aunt Meg question. You know, what, um, so really, what, how have I helped my, my partners get to a place you wouldn't have got to otherwise? Just asking that question leads to lots of introspection, and I think very positive momentum uh, on a journey. Wonderful. Well, look, thank you both so very much today for, for a really stimulating conversation and insight into the world of foundations, the world of motivation, and how to nurture relationships and get the best out of things for all concerned. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure was all mine. Thanks, Alberto. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in today. You've been listening to a wonderful conversation with Simon Zomer, co-CEO of the Jacobs Foundation, and Sharath Jeevan, founder of Intrinsic Labs. For information on this episode and also 100 other interviews with remarkable thought leaders, visit our website at lidji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button if you haven't already. Do leave us a review and share widely with your friends, colleagues, and family. Thanks so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you next week.